to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott, and I'm the Assistant Editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version, or $60 for print plus online. I'm Peter Rose, editor of ABR, and I wanted to let you know about the 2024 tour of the Adelaide Festival and Writers' Week, which ABR will present with our commercial partner, Academy Travel. I'll be co-leading the tour with Christopher Menz, a former director of the Art Gallery of South Australia. Join us for nine days of concerts and performances, guided tours of museums and galleries, plus sessions at Writers' Week, the Odd Restaurant, and ABR's unique brand of conversation and conviviality. Full details are available from the Academy Travel website. See you in Adelaide. Halfway through the current Peter Porter Poetry Prize, we thought it might be fun to revisit past winners and invite them to read their winning poems for the ABR podcast. My name's Peter Rose and I'm editor of Australian Book Review, in which capacity it was my great pleasure to publish the Australian poet Peter Porter on many occasions. Peter, long based in London, wrote for ABR 24 times, from 1986 right up to his death in 2010. Most of these contributions are now available on the ABR Digital Archive. Peter's reviews, essays, and several of his inimitable poems which first appeared in ABR. Peter was one of our most distinguished and loved contributors. The Porter Prize was the first of our literary prizes, all of which are now open to anyone writing in English around the world. ABR presented it for the first time in 2005 as the ABR Poetry Prize. Stephen Edgar was the first winner. With the permission of Peter Porter's family, We renamed the prize in 2011 following his death. This year thus marks the 20th birthday of our Poetry Prize, which is now regarded as one of the most prestigious competitions for a new poem, not a whole manuscript or published collection. The Porter Prize is worth a total of $10,000, of which the winner receives $6,000. The 2024 Poetry Prize closes on October 9, 2023, so you still have plenty of time to enter. Consult our website for terms and conditions and frequently asked questions, also for the full list of winners since 2005. We're joined this week by six past Porter winners, whose poems have brought great lustre to the Porter Prize. We invited them to reflect on the prize and their winning poems, as well as read them. The poets are Judith Beveridge, A. Francis Johnson, Damon O'Brien, Sarah M. Saleh, Alex Govron, and Judith Bishop, who is one of only two poets to win the prize on two occasions. First up, we have A. Francis Johnson, who won the Porter Prize in 2020. Hello, my name's A. Francis Johnson, and today I'd like to read my poem, My Father's Thesaurus. 
But before I do, let me just say that the award of the Peter Porter Prize gave me tremendous confidence and motivation to press on with my poetry and to think further about how I might render the so-called confessional poem without compromising formal interest. The poet Sharon Olds does this brilliantly, I think, and she has been an inspiration to me and to many others. My poem's a free verse elegy. It evokes my father Tom's decline from Alzheimer's disease and also dramatises the trauma of undertaking successive driving tests in old age. The poem was so personal, at the time I didn't even think to enter it. Um, I was really worried it was veering towards the ghastly emotional spillage of memoir. Not my favourite genre, as you might pick up here. But I tinkered with it a lot until the narrative was sufficiently driven by robust visual imagery, dry humour and scattered intertextual references. These were my key techniques and I really hoped that the use of those helped to open the poem out to universal experience. And I slightly tweaked the autobiographical element there so that probably only about 50% of references pertain to my experience of my father. My father's thesaurus. You drove faultlessly until sundown. As dusk fell, trees lit Marguerite black and discreet ideas of near and far merged. Your words, sotto voce and then forte, rolled out. A new babel of half-familiar phrases, expletives, vigilant accountancies, cornball song, plant catalogues and chess moves. That the banks could not be trusted was a saying you'd taken for granted since the Great Depression. Now the phrase bloomed in your brain. At dinner, you said, for reasons of efficiency, the banks were past the mustard. We lovingly accepted the joke. While in the wet yard the dog chased its tail, saw nothing loveless to incriminate. Later, fear grew. School-tie gerontologists, nurses, phone calls, bills, lacking tact. Sheet music's random dots perplexed, rain spots bearing no relation to the cruel beauty of pianos. All could betray, induce the agitation of sunsets. You watched the piano and played the sunset. You insisted every good boy deserved flight. All cows ate gravel. We read your blended agendas uneasily, concealing our weakness at multiple choice. All too soon, random hatred arrived with showgirl fanfare, disfiguring your old kindness. For peace, we concurred on a mattress bank. We agreed the district nurse was trying to poison you. Most days, words aligned, neat as jam jars, the fruity, sunny order of Fowler's Vicola, your late mother's preserves. But we played code breakers as evening fell, winning small semantic wars, fighting through thickets of translation. One night, you drove the car into the garage wall, blue shoe on the accelerator, 
brown on the break. With a bang, words collided around your head like trans not yet waited for. The foul sunset was to blame. A week later, suspension came, plotted by a gimlet-eyed medico. We failed the first test with you, and then the second, weeping in the Colac Coles car park, lost trolleys whirring and clacking. You'd driven at snail pace on country roads, then rocketed across a petunia town roundabout, a bollard bent beneath the wheel. This betrayal, you said, having never brooked a fine, was the bitter end. The nuances of fast and slow, slow then fast, cannot be understood by criminals. We hung our heads and hid the report in the glove box, not accepting a dicky wheel. My mother and I drove you home from the test among paddocks and cattle, vast distances suddenly too close, like a bellicose stranger with foul breath. The strained sun fell like a thief behind the hill. It too had been a shamer, a radiant form with a signature. None of us spoke or decoded. There was nothing left but to hack through the last forests until the axe quietened and you were half calm in night's velvety armchair, dog roiling at your feet like a spinning top. I had one, just like it once, you confided, after furious silence and tea, taking my hand, turning it round and round, bemused, as if you wanted to test it, detach it, and send it whirring into the cold, free universe. Hi, I'm Judith Bishop, and I'm going to read my poem, Openings, which was a co-winner of the 2011 prize with Tony Lindemans. But first, the impact of the prize. The prize gave me such confidence at a time when I really needed it. I was struggling to write my second book, Interval, in the space between motherhood and work, and people were telling me I couldn't be both a mother and a writer. But the prize told me, just as I was about to become a second-time mother, that I had a gift for sharing intimate experience in poetry that mattered to others as fiercely as it mattered to me. In terms of how the poem came about, well, it came from many different directions. Reading the four quartets taught me how a poem can be a musical composition whose whole is something greater than the sum of the parts. And I remember finding parts of the poem at different time intervals and the way they just slotted in together. I had the first and the third parts written, and then our neighbour died, and the second and fourth parts got written out of the grief I felt. The fifth part, with its weeping willow, was a gift from a visit with our first child to the Chinese Garden of Friendship in Sydney. I think every poem is a gift to its writer, but this one felt especially important to me because it touched on so much experience that mattered to me, particularly the wonder of our baby discovering the world. Openings I could say hello to things. Theodore Rodke, oh lull me, lull me. One, 
The hands wave when it comes, formal, yet never once the same, awkward sometimes, sometimes half withheld, from the sunlight of the brain makes a shadow of intent. Something alights in the meadow of vision, shimmering, electric, each datum serene in its dance of arrival from the world, each met by the sprightly pas de deux of the brain, holiest union, whose coda unfolds in the body's archipelago of darkening roads, where the nerve bulb flashes and winks out. Two. Loveliness and horror pass through the open gate, appear in the field, and the widening ripples begin, startled dances and audience beyond all places in the brain where the judgments rise and shout. How do you open the gate to a birth? How do you open the door on a death? Open, knowing what must dart out like a cat. Open, knowing how the rush will numb the fingers to any further action and the mind be transfixed before the scene. Three. Does the tree return her greeting when a child says hello? Something happens in the interval of love. It must, for though the air is unmoved, time opens and floats like the seeds of a dandelion clock. Then call the tree by its name. Like the unicorn, it steps into your mind and will remain. She came to the door one afternoon. She said, Have you seen my brother? We've been calling for a week. My mother's worried. Our neighbour, who was friendly and young, kept unusual hours. His door absorbed her knocking back, 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 an uncrossable field. At last she said, I'll go get the police. A quiet hour passed. Then we heard the door opened. We heard a woman weeping at the sight. Five. Yellow leaves on black water, weeping willow, and father, the tree entire mirrored, for a child too young to understand the doubling of a thing between image and is, how the flapping duck scours off the duck afloat on water as it rises into all and only what it is in air. This is the time when what does not exist begins to. Symbol and thing acquiesce in their merger. One and the other are met by the child with equanimity. The willow weeps and is greeted both in water and in air. My name is Judith Beveridge and I won the Peter Porter Prize in 2015 for my poem As Wasps Fly Upwards and it's meant a great deal to me to be part of this winning cohort as the prize attracts extremely fine entries and to be among those who have won is a great honour and a great confidence booster, especially as it carries the name of the great Australian poet Peter Porter. 
My poem uh, came about when I recalled an occurrence some time ago when an insect flew into my eye and caused considerable pain. The poem then became a meditation on various forms of physical pain and ways in which these might be metaphorically described. As wasps fly upwards. I'm walking home in the dying light of a summer's day. I do not know that within the minute a tiny beetle will veer into my left eye, its blade-like parts meant for slicing plant tissue, slicing my cornea. I do not know that within an hour my eye will feel as though it has undergone a corneal graft with razor blades, burning match heads, acid rinses. Christmas eye, a doctor will call it. I'm remembering this because I'm reading about entomologist Justin Schmidt, who once clung to a tree suspended over a Costa Rican gorge while enraged wasps squirted venom into his eyes. A man stung by more winged insects than anyone, who has classified all the piercing, irreverent, bold, electric, smoky aches down to precise decimal gradations on a five-point sting-pain index. I've also been reading a study that describes how Catholics feel the ferocity of pain ease if they contemplate images of Mary, atheists if they watch documentaries featuring David Attenborough. So I wonder when Schmidt steps on a nest of red harvester ants and pain shoots like mordant dye through his body, what angelic or analgesic image does he conjure to demobilise the piercing, crunching agony? Or can he just sigh and look into the distance and let his mind find relief in the palliative cotton or wind-blown clouds? I recall once or twice in childhood the pencil-point pressure of a fang shooting an aggregation of misery along my arm as a spider discharged its voltage before dropping from my wrist like decommissioned fuse wire. And then there are the pangs that spasmodically flare along the nerves on the underside of my upper right arm. And I wonder if this is like the pain Schmidt feels in his fingers when digging up a colony of fire ants. I remember too when an abundance of work and worry has made my cranium feel as if it belonged to a large-headed baby undergoing hours of obstructed labour. Though perhaps if I'd been bitten by a bullet ant, which Schmidt likens to fire-walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch rusty nail grinding into your heel, I might have a better point of comparison and without hesitation be grateful I've never had to invent a pain scale drawing and quartering metaphors for the way toxins can burst open cellular membranes or for the way suffering can be internally transacted, made dangerous and monstrous by the fallacies of the self. Sometimes I lie awake and remember that death will come, perhaps suddenly from a tree or an overhanging rock or from a sliding shadow in the grass or from a knot of dark blood bivouacking in my brain, or perhaps from a fever 
my skin crawling as though I were lying in the path of a horde of bull acacia ants, or intense itching and burning as if I'd been rubbed with a concoction of wasabi, hot mustard, and the necrotizing venom of a white-tailed spider. Or perhaps just from a build-up over the years of light, ephemeral stings, barely noticed, no pain worth recording, just a remote hum in a honey vault of light, then a smoky drifting away. Hi there. My name is Damon O'Brien and my Peter Porter winning poem is called PH. I've always been an admirer of the Peter Porter Poetry Prize. I never felt the judges got it wrong. Every winning poem was spectacular, whether it was Stephen Edgar's, Judith Bishop's, Judith Beveridge's or Michael Farrell's. I would read them again and again. I wanted desperately to write something that was as good as those. Winning the prize felt like I had made it that I could write something as good, that I deserved to call myself a poet. PH came out of reading a bunch of back issues of literature journals. I had been looking for a form that would allow me to produce a poem that had both depth and breadth, and I'd seen a few list poems I liked in those journals that achieved that. Poems that used the alphabet or the colour wheel to explore broader issues. I thought I should try that. PH was the result. Here is the poem. PH 14. Sodium hydroxide Washed out, the unbalanced washing machine jitters and grinds across the laundry, choking on business shirts. 13. Bleach Someone has poured bleach over the evening. We can't stand ourselves. We roar and rub and exsanguinate into silence. 12. Ammonia A rainbowed slip of chemicals, wrinkles and cakes in an onshore breeze against the east side of the island. They were traced to a container ship bound for Singapore. 11. Charcoal She left the church early this morning, blinking and red-eyed. It's too soon for Amazing Grace. That song rolled into the furnace with a coffin. 10. Soap Only losers are prosecuted for war crimes. The foreign correspondent footnotes chemicals blistering in a child's eyes and barrel bombs germinating in Syria. Skin doesn't remain neutral. 9. Baking Soda Breathing through the balloon of their skin, the corroboree frog stops calling in Kosciuszko. Stained by a fungus dust, their skin skews and barks and peels. 8. Seawater Human interest story. Scientists weep a solution of sodium and potassium, but can't save them. There is something out of balance. 7. Blood. Water should be neutral. But all day we ferried test tubes and paper tapers bearing telltale colour. The tank smears with algae. Even the hardy, brutal goldfish would gulp and bloat in it. 6. Milk. The sun cream doesn't last. 
15 overs under the pinched membrane of ozone that pales the sky, and we are painting ourselves again, itching all weekend, the boys blister and mist lozenges of skin. 5. Black Coffee She has lost all her friends, strained off by marriage, tired out by children, and the local cafe is precious to her. We perch studiously on the stools, sip our coffees, and talk to the owner. 4. Orange Juice This is a good year for mosquitoes, burned out by the government's careful carpet-bombing of estuaries. We can sit on the deck into the evening and drink a haze of bitter wine. Something in the strafing chemicals attacks bees. Next year will be bad for crops. 3. Coke In the machinery of God, 100 billion people have lived and died. The experiment must be nearly done. 2. Vinegar Most days, the river runs white downstream from the mine. The buns have leaked for years. The seepage pits are full. It's a fragile balance when the island's economy depends upon that silver. The earth eats itself. 1. Battery acid We rarely kiss, and even less on the lips. My lips are an acid etch. She leaves at different hours and numbs her way to work. There is something out of balance. Thank you, ABR, for the opportunity to read this poem and for all your continued support to poetry. A Poetics of Forgetting by Sada Saleh I forget tradition, a tray of sticky dates passed around the kitchen table, bismillah in our mouths before we ravenously break the dusk, chew and spit back the pits, ma ladling lumpy lentil soup abandonment pouched in her long sleeves and old injury she does not stop pressing. How are we still here, made of garlic breath, violent affection, arrears, ma pushes. Alhamdulillah, for these bounties, we are blessed girls, these pleasantries, these communal myths we tell to spare each other. I forget how I cannot see the stars, how the barbecued smoke eats at the sky, how we elbow our way through chattering heads congealed in every crack on Halden. I cannot see the sidewalk, but I hear it. Sahlab, sahlab. Mustachioed men in red tarbushes summon us beneath strings of plastic crescents. Dangling babies shriek parents into surrender. A siren wails somewhere. This evening orchestra. My sisters dervish and droop shiny baubles. Painted gold lids and hips. Desires too big for the lives that chose them. Ma says... This love is haram, so we learn to keep our distance together. We remember the Lord. These celebrations, 
these distractions we share to comfort one another, and naming those who stray will not bring them back in any religion. I forget how our Lebanon made its way to Lakemba. Mothers of disappeared sons wait, they hold up headscarves like white flags, like nooses. War wants us even in peacetime. These Muslim dogs, these ragheads, chalk outlines and choppers crawling low. Our loss barely literate. We pretend not to notice this neighborhood is an obituary. These farewells, these griefs we silence so we do not set ourselves on fire. I forget how I awaken in the arms of another, how there are no muezzins interrupting dawn, only this tango of breaths and gasps, how I have dared to worship in a language that is not Arabic, how I tried to scrub and scrub Ma's beauty spots off my face, you are devoted to them, to this altar of soft, turmeric skin and sadness. I shake the shame out of my curls. I dip into the surge, the stagger, the rapture, and the rupture. The din, it ruined me, it split my God. I want to pray, but I cannot recall the verses. These divinations, these transgressions, so I do not forget every lonely night that ever was. My name is Alex Skovron. I was winner of the 2007 prize for my poem, Sanctum. To win a major national poetry prize of the calibre and prestige of the Peter Porter was a great thrill and, of course, a precious landmark in my progress and growth as a poet. I'd like to add that in the early 1980s, when I was just starting to publish my poems and nearly 25 years before I won this prize, Peter Porter kindly read an early version of my first manuscript and offered both a critical response and positive encouragement. It was an important early validation of my poetic ambitions. Thank you, Peter, and thank you, ABR. I don't recall the specific trigger for this poem, but I was writing prose poetry at the time, it was 2004, so the original version of Sanctum was formally quite different. The final version dates from late 2006. As happens in poetry, once I had a fix, so to speak, on the poem's tone and atmosphere, the elements and imagery somehow came together, weaving themselves into the mysterious tableau portrayed by the narrator, a shadowy library in a large house where strange, loud night parties are held, disdained by the depressive, bibulous scholar obsessed with the satires. I must have been reading Horace at the time. So here is my poem, Sanctum. So there he was in the library, crouched above the floor like a mousetrap, squinting into his rickety parallel edition of the satires. The paperback was from the late fifties. Its cover had long detached, released its burden, demoted itself to a floating, flapless jacket and some of the pages were beginning to tip out. In short, the book required two hands to be consulted, so his grip was intense but worshipful. 
He never journeyed anywhere without it, and he relished the odd quotation over an ale. Why is it, my sinus, he would mutter, that no one is ever quite happy? And there he was again on the Persian rug, a prayer-mat mouse lattening into his cups, mumbling mantras that he alone could hear. We hated it when the demons repossessed him. The medicos would dismiss him as eccentric, at best melancholic, in those days when the sadness was just a cloak. The house tonight shook to ineluctable musics. The clustered roomfuls jangled and rowdied onward. Distressing damsels, spilt and semi-clad, drifted the liquid corridors, strumming their thighs. But he had settled himself on the magical carpet, Horace in hand, deaf to all temptation. A prism of the black label sat beside him, the mystic flask, an orange glow on the mantel. Yet his love of the elixir never placated him. It only made him vocal and further classical. Surely enough, as we broached his shadowy island, he shouted, Nemo! Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review Podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.